0: Welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. You know, one of the greatest joys that I have in doing the work that I do is in collaboration and specifically collaborating with other agencies and organizations. It's just, I find to be one of the most important, impactful things that we can be doing in order to affect systemic change. And when I'm able to reach somebody who has a lot of pull in an organization that is interested in real collaborations and and doing things that are going to really manifest into helping to serve other people, it is just so invigorating and energizing. And so in today's episode, it is a manifestation of collaborating with the Red Cross, And the Independent Living Network has uh, done a lot of work and behind the scenes into trying getting the Red Cross, who on our previous long form interview was with their executive director Deborah Koch, getting them together with centers for independent living so that we can share information, technical assistance, resources, so that we can do better when disaster strikes in meeting the needs of people with disabilities. This is part two of. Centers for Independent Living, specifically directors Peter O'Connell, Carolyn Growley, Sawanda McDaniel, and myself, coming to help educate Red Cross volunteers and staff and supervisors about meeting the needs of people with disabilities during disasters. And we get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty about what it's like to communicate with people with disabilities during disasters, ideas of how they can help to provide accommodations, especially while sheltering uh, during disasters, and so much more. And this is so important because as, if you heard the previous long-form interview with Deborah, there's like 200,000 volunteers that work for the Red Cross. So touching each of them, uh, with all the different necessary trainings is uh, quite a feat. And then specifically to try and get in there and help educate people, especially those that might not have a lot of experience in helping to serve people with disabilities, is so important. And that's why we're just so happy that the Red Cross has been an eager partner in helping to facilitate opening the door for us to to connect with their volunteers and now you all in terms of getting this important information out there. So you're getting a little bit of a peek behind the scenes of what it's like when really great collaborations at a high level happens and the result being, you know, we get these great trainings that we're able to bring to the volunteers that do the incredible work that they do, ensuring that the safety of the community is met when it's darkest hours are upon us and is specifically for the most vulnerable population during disasters, people with disabilities, enjoy.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. And thank you, Debbie, for um, allowing us to be here today and for connecting the Centers for Independent Living with the Red Cross. I think that it is such an important partnership that we have. And so we're forever grateful for yourself and your team for having us here today. Um, I wanted to do a really quick introduction of our panelists, starting with myself, Sawanda McDonald. I am the chief executive officer at Disability Solutions for Independent Living that's located in Daytona Beach. And we have Peter O'Connell. Peter, give us a quick wave. Um, Peter is the chief executive officer of Center for Independent Living of South Florida. And then we have Carolyn Growey. Carolyn is the executive director of the Center for Independent Living in Northwest Florida. I'm going to keep this together. So you guys bear with me. And then we have Tony DeLau. Tony give us a quick wave. He is the chief executive officer of the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. So while you all are doing that, we're going to kind of talk about um, creating a brave space and a safe space for a conversation. Um, this is near and dear to our hearts as DILs throughout the state of Florida, we like to make sure that anytime we're doing a presentation, a conversation, um, that we create a space that's brave, that's open for dialogue, that everyone feels like they're able to share, they're able to learn, they're able to grow. And that's very important to us. So what we're going to ask is that everyone just kind of keep some key terms in mind. Um, Vulnerability, we want to make sure that everyone's being vulnerable. You're, You're allowed to to share your feelings, your thoughts, without being criticized, harassed, without feeling like you're you're being singled out, anything of such, right? We want to just make sure that that space is safe for you to share. And so we just want to kick it off with some quick questions, and we're going to ask everyone to share your thoughts, ideas. Tony, it looks like we have some individuals that are the secretary of the Red Cross, disaster responders. Um, let's see, we have volunteer leads, we have DE&I community chair, I love it, volunteer screeners, so just so you know who we have in the room.
0: Well, thank you, Sawanda, and um, this is a pleasure. I want to underscore what you said. It's wonderful that the Red Cross is so uh, eager and interested in learning how to serve, how to communicate. Uh, better with people with disabilities. We had a great uh, lively uh, discussion the first round and uh, we look forward to hearing from our audience. We definitely want to direct this discussion to be tailored to what your needs are. And um, one of the uh, icebreaker questions we we wanted to throw out there that you all can put in uh, the chat feature, which you know could help us uh, orient our conversation would be uh, maybe a two-parter here. So, um, supposing that you're uh, in your role uh, that you're with at the you know, Red Cross and, and suppose your role is uh, either working at a shelter or in some capacity serving uh, a person with a disability. Um, what disability would you feel least prepared to, to assist or accommodate? What would you feel most prepared to assist or accommodate? So, imagining your role uh, as a volunteer, you know, for the Red Cross or, or whatever your capacity might be, it sounds like we got several different types of roles on this uh, webinar. Uh, what type of disability um, would you feel least comfortable in, in working with, and most comfortable in working with? And again, you know, Sawana is creating a you know safe and brave space for here to for us to be open and honest. And um, you know, so please, even if you do, you know, it's it's okay to say I feel not so comfortable communicating with someone who's deaf or someone that might have a mental health condition or someone that might be uh, completely blind or a wheelchair user, who would you feel most comfortable? What would you feel least comfortable uh, in serving and meeting their needs? Caroline and and, and Peter, um, uh, you know, we're gonna maybe throw out some, and Sawanda gonna throw out some questions uh, to them in the meantime. We're gonna go around this as a, as a discussion. Peter, do you see anything coming in just off the uh, chat that we can? Not yet. In?
2: People, people are a little bit nervous. I would tell okay. you that you know I would be most concerned. Wait, I'd feel uncomfortable with anyone with a disability. Greg, I—that's good honesty right there. I love it. You know, um, I—I'll you know, tell you, I'm a professional. At least they tell me I'm a professional in this business. Um, and and I think one of the things that mo- is most challenging. For me would be someone with the psych disability. Um, and and you know they, they come in so many different flavors and so many different forms um, that, that' trying to figure out where it is that 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 would be. Um, that that would be where. Um, you know as a wheelchair user i'd be most comfortable with using user, wheelchair users because because I, I i at least feel as though i know when i can call bs on somebody um and and i can go oh, okay no that that's that's legit um yeah. yeah but then we've got a less comfortable with with uh a psych disability that's not under control, um anybody with offending anybody with a visible disability. Yeah, that that that's that's real tough. And 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 you know to, to back up what Sawanda would say, you know, we're not gonna worry about language and words as much today. So so feel <laughs> free to put in, you know, um I I I I, when we were prepping for this, I made a, a, a not so good joke um, and, and, and you know if, if I can do that, you, know, feel free. Um, please experiment what's in the Americans with Disabilities Act. Ron, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in one of our questions. Um, I would tell you that there are armies of lawyers for and, and, and on, on either side of disability cases. That have spent made fortunes trying to decide what's in the Americans with disabilities Act. Um, most comfortable with visible disability. Um, and then somebody who with speech disability. Um, that, that's an interesting component. There, there is a big dividing line within the community, disability community, with those who can verbally communicate um, with others, and then who, those who can't, regardless of the type whether it's a physical disability, whether um, it, it's it's a psych disability or a developmental disability. Um, Ronald, you've got a medical disability, there is no such thing we would tell you, you just have a disability. Um, but not as confident with someone who has a psych disability um, and more confident with someone who, who has a wheelchair, but that could be just in a wheelchair. Alexander, more power to you. Um, Julie, d- 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 Julie, Uhrman, most comfortable with a visual disability. I work with a guide dog school, um, and least speech disability if I could not understand them, um, and those are the responses we've gotten so far. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I think the the important part and and the the aspect of of this that I think is important to know is even if we surveyed. Um, all of our independent living centers, in terms of the people we, we weren't, the answers would be different. Um, so, I, 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 you know, those you're most comfortable with invariably are going to be the ones that you've had the most exposure to. Um, and those that you are least comfortable with are the ones that you've had the least exposure to. Um, you know, at, Tony and Carolyn are more comfortable dealing with folks with visual impairments, I suspect, uh, you know, because that that's part of their experience. Um, you know, so is comfortable dealing with them. Well, not to make a joke. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know, that that has to be. So that that's what's in the chat, Tony.
0: Well, thank you, Peter. I, I appreciate that. And, and maybe we'll jump into um, a wheelchair user. And, and since you've you know been uh, you know so open about it, um, let's suppose we have a situation uh, where you know Red Cross volunteers working in a shelter, and someone arrives in a wheelchair. Um, what what considerations, what steps would you want them to either take or to know about or to be aware of in um, assisting them as they stay at the shelter? Like what are some of the things in mind that they should have uh, at the front of it um, when receiving someone in a wheelchair at a shelter
2: yeah um i you know i and and I just want to Dennis the i i Dennis talked about um, having practiced the experience of, of it um that's fantastic for getting an initial experience um I would just warn you that, there are so many depths and layers that that there's there's a lot um, more to it too, but it is a a good first step. Um, In answer to what you should do is is step one um, is when you first get to your site, try to find out where your steps are, um, where your layers are. There are so many times that individual, I have been with what I like to call bipeds Um, those who are ambulatory but I just like calling them bipeds um, don't notice when they take uh, a walk over one step um, because it doesn't cause them any degree of difficulty or challenge Um, and, and so I have gone to places where you know hey let's go out to dinner here and I go is it accessible and they go, oh yeah, it's completely accessible. Um, and only to discover that there's about eight inches of not accessibility right in the front of it. Um, so step one is is you know, when you look at your shelter, even if it is accessible, just have an idea of where the parts that aren't accessible, or if you're having people going to a portion. So for example, I in a wheelchair may be able to do everything within the shelter, but there may be an, a second half of the shelter that, that I can't get to um, that, that you may want to make me aware of. Um, so you've got somebody in a wheelchair um, who's, who's coming in. Oh my gosh, what do we do? How do we handle it? Um, step one, just pull them aside. Hey, see you in the chair. Is there, any, is there anything in particular you think you'll need to be helped with? Um, while you're here, we're gonna work on helping you, feeding you, giving you a chance to go to the bathroom, take a shower potentially, depending upon the length of the stay, day and sleep. Any of that stuff that you need assistance with. And then they'll have an answer. As someone who is coming up on, sort of years old. Um I I know what I need help with. Um and, and I know how I how i like to need that help. And because I've been doing it in my daily life. You you tell me what the activities are going on in the course of the shelter and then I'll tell you what, what need to and then you figure out the answers that that come along there.
3: Hey Peter, can I ask yes. you a question though? Certainly. Would you want somebody to literally pull you aside? Um. I, I. Yeah. I.
2: I. I, I would. Um. I, I. I. I'm. Well. Okay. Not literally. Don't. Don't drag me. Don't put. Don't push my chair, off to the side. I mean. I. I, I hey. Can I talk? Can I talk to you for a moment? Over here? Is the the do so? I my my presumption. You know. We we covered this, in a little bit. And thank you, Carolyn. We covered this a little bit in in the first part. One of the fascinating things about being in a wheelchair is that my wheelchair is an extension of my body and an extension of my personal space. So you know, leaning on my chair may seem like just you know a friendly or when I say pull pull aside, I mean you in in the, in the metaphorical sense. just thought Um,
3: i'd clarify just to be certain yeah um and and then the one thing
2: that that i get oftentimes for people who are using wheelchairs wheelchair riders as we are because it's a lot cooler when we're wheelchair riders makes us sound like we're using motorcycles it is should i crouch down should i sit when i'm talking to somebody in a wheelchair and my answer is if you're just having a short conversation with someone just stand it seems to be not transition to make if you've just got a quick question go ahead if you are going to have an extended conversation you know find a chair and and sit down and you know it it it, it you know ultimately um as we will cover in many of these things the answer is is when in doubt just ask the person and and rarely is anybody going to get an offense on the question of how can I help you? I, I have never gotten angry from anybody who says, "Hey, would you like me to crouch? Would you like me to sit?" Well, I'm, well, I'm chatting with you. For me, I don't really care. For others, it, it, it it's important for them. To just ask a question. So that, that's the basic overall guide for folks who are using wheelchairs. I think I've got the next one, Tony, but, but I don't know if that's, that's my list.
0: No, you sound great you know for, from what I heard is just you know make sure that if you're staff in a shelter um, even if it's you know supposedly fully accessible go around and look for for any places that might not be like you said like there might be an eight- inch step up somewhere along the way and uh, you know think about this all the way from the parking lot uh, you know how they get through the door the sidewalks the walkways you mentioned um, you know the eating areas, uh, the sleeping areas are the water fountains. You know, is 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 there only one or a couple of water fountains that are accessible for people in wheelchairs? Um,
2: so, so, you so know, I'm what, gonna I'm gonna cut in their time. Yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. I have gone in through an accessible entrance of a building, and then attempted to go out another door in a building, only to discover that door had a step to it. And <laughs> That was not a fun combination. No. And if you know about that beforehand, you might want to put a sign
0: up um, saying this is not an accessible door. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I think that like begs the kind of response too. that walk the routes around the shelter it could likely be a shelter that maybe people aren't familiar with or going to volunteer, they haven't been there. Um, go walk all the different routes that are, you know, that can get in, go out, all the different ways to find those places that could be inaccessible. Uh, go into the bathrooms. Where would be a roll-in shower? Is there one? Where could you find places that, you know, might not be as accessible? Especially if there's an activity area that other people are invited into, you know, is that is that accessible as well? You know, then all the different places are the. Are the doorways wide enough? You know, these are very important uh, things to to take a look around. Even if you're told the facility is accessible, you might have to, you know, help escort someone around it. What's the best ways around uh, the the facility uh, to help and assist somebody with? So, I think doing that walkabout's good.
1: Tony, I wanted to add to that point because I think Greg made a really, really good point in the chat box. He said that um, never make assumptions. And I think that that is definitely something we would need to highlight because um, it, it just kind of speaks to what Peter just said. And um, you can't assume that the person needs your assistance, right? Um, it's it's all too often that, you know, we, we as Centers for Independent Living, we promote independence, right? And And anyone probably with a disability will tell you that they want the independence. They're not necessarily there um, for for you to assume that they're unable to do something or assume you need their help eating or assume that you need um, their help with transferring from their chair to a stationary space. You know, there's, there's an assumption that um, someone may, may make that, you know, oh, this person needs help navigating they need help with and it's not always the case so i just wanted to make sure that we highlighted that never make assumptions it's so much easier to just ask
0: yeah i can't tell you how many times i've heard stories of people with disabilities that um let say a bystander will come by and just jump in right away and start assisting them with whatever they may be doing without even asking um so very very good point to have there kind of It goes to what Carolyn was alluding to about pulling people aside. (laughs) So Carolyn, I'll kind of throw the same question to you because um, you you and I are both uh, legally blind, not totally blind. What considerations would you want, you know, accommodations or or otherwise um, when you say come to a shelter? So we got, you know, a staff that's at a shelter and they're receiving somebody that's legally or totally blind. Um, what should they be keeping in mind? What should they be doing in order to accommodate and and receive somebody with visual impairments?
3: So I think that it all starts again with that that first piece of, of having the shelter staff and volunteers all be open to conversation and asking because even in the fact that I am legally blind, if I'm familiar with wherever I'm entering, I may not be using my cane. So you might not know that I was legally blind at the time. However, it may be that there's some other activity that needs to go someplace else in the shelter where in order for me to get there, I might need to use my cane. Or it might be that you want some paperwork filled out. And if the paperwork is all in tiny print, uh, then I may or may not be able to see that or enlarge it uh, on my phone. Or I might need somebody to uh, read that aloud so I can give the information so that you have it accurately. Um, For somebody who's non-sighted, they may be able to give you content, but they may not be able to to fill out that that paperwork themselves. If there happened to be a working device that was there or a way to email something, somebody may be able to listen and fill something out themselves, um, depending on uh, what type of uh, power situation might be available at the time. Uh, So that also depends. At different times, people could use different... um, functional ways of adapting to what will be happening. So certainly if a a shelter has the opportunity to have some items in large print, that doesn't mean you need to have a hundred items in large print. If you had one set of everything in large print, that would be another way of being able to, at least for a person with low vision, to be able to offer a different option. Uh, Being able to orient somebody, again, just like for Peter, not just pulling them aside, Asking how is it best, how's the best way to assist you? How could I how could you help guide and offer them your elbow? Uh, if you're able to offer them your elbow and, and perhaps putting their hand to your elbow if if uh, you have whichever side, you might even ask them, is it better for me to guide you from the right or the left if somebody has a a, a more favored way of being uh, guided through a space? Letting somebody know where are you in the facility? This is the main room. Um, If we were to go hundred yards forward on the left, there would be where the restrooms are. Uh, If we were to go to uh, hundred yards to the right would be the entrance to the cafeteria, whatever those pieces might be that would be useful, walking that person around. And then um, not leaving somebody just in the middle of an open space and saying, bye, see ya, figure it out. Letting somebody know where you're leaving them. You are so far from the door on this side or there's activities to the left on that side and how far. Um, Maybe it's that we have rows of cots and the cots are about 10 feet apart. Whatever it might be for for that particular situation would be very useful. Letting somebody know perhaps how long you might be on shift and who might be the next uh, person coming on shift before you leave, if that was the person that they've always dealt with during that particular stay. Being able to Um, have that opportunity to ask the questions and share the information back and forth. And honestly, for some individuals who might ordinarily not be visually impaired prior to coming to a shelter, perhaps part of what happened on their way to the shelter is their glasses broke. With their glasses, they may, for some individuals, they may be not legally blind. But if they didn't have glasses, they may be legally blind. In my particular situation, My glasses help me to enlarge some things to read, but they never improve my vision. So my vision never gets better than 2200 for any walking, doing things. In my case, Um, if somebody was to come to me from the side on my left side, I wouldn't even know they were there necessarily. I might hear them, but I might not be able to see whatever they were trying to show me because on my left side, I don't see anything. And then some, for some people that might be the opposite. Um, or it might not be that they see anything at all. So again, it's allowing individuals to share what they may need, offering that opportunity for them to do so. Being patient, I think, is also the other piece. I know that as volunteers, there's a lot of stress. As persons coming into new situations, as all the community members are coming in, there's a lot of stress. So if we take that one second longer just to, like, take a breath, and then wait for the answer, we may each be able to get information from one another that will be very useful in moving the situation forward for the best outcomes
1: for each person.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. I was Uh, was gonna add
1: to Tony, if I can. um, One of the Uh, things that Carolyn talked about um, heavily is the environment, right? And I think um, I had the opportunity to visit several of the um, shelters during Hurricane Michael. And one of the things that I noticed that was really prevalent is that individuals in the shelter um, that are there visiting the shelter, they kind of put their things just wherever in their space, right? And I think one of the things that you um, could benefit from as a a shelter employee is, is trying to make sure, or even a shelter volunteer, right? It's just trying to make sure that others in the shelter are cognizant of where they put their belongings right because Mm -hmm. if an individual is there that's non-sighted whether it be low vision or total total blindness um they may trip over that right they it, it could easily be a tripping hazard and cause a huge injury um, that is could be avoided. Right. So I think environment is a huge deal. And, um, and I thank you for sharing that, Carolyn, but I did, I definitely wanted to just kind of hone in on that environmental Mm -hmm. piece, because I think it's a factor that um, we take for granted um, with others, you know, just kind of putting their things wherever. And I think that we can benefit from saying something about that.
3: And I think that that's true for other um, disabilities as well, which it could Mm -hmm. be somebody who might be using a walker, it could be somebody who's on crutches, it could be somebody who has a balance impairment, it could be a person using a a wheelchair, it could be a power chair, it could be a manual chair, any, any type of mobility device or any type of mobility impairment that somebody may experience could have a factor. And so it's keeping all of those access routes clear and avoiding of, of complications, as Wanda was pointing out, is really important. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: To, to add to, uh, or, or underscore some of what you said there, uh, for me, uh, being legally blind, I know when I, um, I've never been in a shelter uh, situation, um, but I am aware that oftentimes there's paperwork to fill out and everything else like that. I know when I'm walking into a situation like a doctor's office, and um, I usually will have to ask for assistance in completing whatever paperwork might be there uh, to fill out. And, and I got to tell you, I'm always sensitive to the fact that whoever I'm asking is likely very busy. They're fielding phone calls they're trying to attend to people that might have a line behind me and as as well. And uh, more often than not, when I let them know I'm legally blind and need assistance, filling it out, most people are very gracious in, in, in doing that, even though they're very busy. Um, and, and I hope you all can do the same if ever in that situation, because, uh, it's very important to, you know, they, there is an alternative formats with super large font. You know, it, it is very incumbent that uh, you assist people in, in in completing paperwork. But also, you know, what signage is around the shelter, you know, um, that people who are legally blind or totally blind cannot read. And, and so there might be a lot of signage around directing people certain places or informing them about certain rules and con- conduct them, et cetera. The, the people that are legally blind or totally blind aren't going to be able to read that. And so what, what, what needs to you know be articulated to people so that they can understand? I really am um, somebody that, that's relying on spatial awareness. And so when, uh, you know, Sawanda and Caroline were mentioned the environment, again, you know, kind of like with a wheelchair user, know what routes that might be the best route for somebody that has limited or no vision at all. And, and how should they best get around the facility? Um, walk the facility, see what that might be. You know, you may need to orient somebody if they, like myself, who's uh, legally blind, um, where's the men's restroom? I can't tell you how many times I've almost walked into the wrong one. You know, these kind of things, really think about it. of like is a, a in tandem with this and usually accompany it especially if somebody is totally blind is that they'll be there's the chance that they'll be coming to the shelter with a service animal so i'm going to throw this one over to our, any of our panelists who might want to field this but what are some do's and don'ts regarding assistive animals what are some of the things that people that are working in shelters should know about a person comes into the shelter with a, an, a, an assistive animal? What are some of the things people should know, what to do and what not to do?
3: So first of all, uh, Tony, one of the most important things is that the service animal is able to accompany that person wherever they are. What's really important is that a service animal is not the same thing as a pet. A service animal is there is a working uh, dog during the time. The only time that the service animal is not working is when a harness isn't on them probably in the shelter, they're gonna have their, their harness on the whole time. Um, but the not petting, the not encouraging, the not feeding, all those kinds of things, those are the pieces that the master of that service animal, which is the person with disability, should be the person in charge of what's happening. If there's ever a question or something that's an of, of concern, talking to that person about it. The service animal is required to be in control of that master of that animal at all times, you can always ask that the service animal be excused from a space, but you can never dissuade the person. So you could say, unless the service animal is able to be held on their on their leash with their harness or held, or, you know, doing their job, they can't be roaming the shelter. They can't be out of the control of that person. They can't be going to try to take food from the next area or the next table or things like that. Um, they need to be in control. If for some reason that animal wasn't in control, then you are able to ask that the animal be removed from that space. Now, obviously, during an emergency, it's going to be even more complicated. However, it is really important to understand that the, the animal doesn't, the service animal doesn't get to overtake the space that everybody else has to occupy, also. At that time, the service animal needs to be in control of that master. So that's really important. One other piece that I wanted to just go back to real quickly is that we're not required to have braille for everything. Uh, That is a way that some persons who are non-sighted will communicate or be able to read or know information. What is required though, is to have effective communication. So being able to offer that information. And the other piece is something that myself or anybody else here on the panel may be is that we're very open. People know a lot about our situations and we've spoken and shared content. I still probably wouldn't stand up on you know, a bullhorn and say, my birth date is, and blah, 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 blah out to the whole uh, generic population, right? However, um, being able to share what's needed is very important. Um, so being able to talk one-on-one with, uh, with somebody, and somebody who is sight impaired beard may or may not be somebody who's hearing impaired, but they don't need you to shout at them, that's for sure. Um, that they're, they're probably gonna be able to hear you as well, or be able to be pointed in the right direction of whatever else might be. And also being able to say, I understand that you're gonna need assistance. I've asked somebody else to come up and we'll get to you as soon as we can, but could you please have a seat or would you please stay you know, to the side of me here and we'll get to you as soon as we can, if that was needed. A lot of times individuals would be operating independently in their lives. Somebody doesn't live with me to read what I need to have read. Somebody doesn't live with me to take care of getting me to the right line at the right time, right? That's something that I don't have to do most of the time um, with guidance from somebody else. But in in a shelter situation, that would be different. Well, in that same situation with a service animal, the service animal is going to be able to try to guide based on the commands that the person who is the master would be able to guide to. So if you were to say to The person who's non-sighted who's using the service animal um the the women's restroom is on the left then they might be guiding the dog may then guide the person to where the doors are and and be able to say to the dog at that point we're going to go to the left door and it'll take the person to the left door now if you told them the wrong door they're going to go to the wrong restroom in that case and so being able to be clear about understanding where things are in relation to what is really on your right or your left, what is your North or your South or your East or your West so that people can know where you're guiding them to. And so that's also really important that that's another way that the service animal can be of great assistance to the individual in the new environment.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, Peter, Sawanda, do you have anything to add to what uh, Carolyn shared? Well, Carolyn, I, I was going to ask you the question and,
2: and whether you've got a concise answer or you want to let me take a crack at it. I know it was something that was put into is, is sometimes, some people attempt to make a um, an animal they say is a service animal um, when we've got concerns that it might not be a service animal. That somebody's trying to pull a fast one over on us, what would be the ways that we could determine whether how do we know that that's a service animal right. and not somebody's pet that they've brought in that? that, that.
3: Right, absolutely. And so of course, this is where, where Peter will say, we're not lawyers. But the two questions you can legally ask somebody are, one, is it a service animal? And then two, what are the tasks that it's performing for you? Now, it could be that most of the time that somebody has a service animal with you, they may not have to uh, do a task for you, but the fact that it's a service animal and that they have certain tasks that they are performing would be really important. So, for example, a person who might be deaf could have a service animal, and the reason that service animal might be there is to alert that person that somebody is nearby or that somebody is coming to their place of residence. Well, they can't leave their service animal behind because that service animal has been trained to do certain things and they can have their service animal with them. They still have to be in control of their service animal. They still have to be able to to be able to, uh, make sure that that service animal isn't interfering with the ways and means of everybody else. However, they don't have to show you that task at the time, but that service animal has to be, the only things you can ask is, is it a service animal? And what tasks does it perform? Those are the only two things that you can ask.
2: And it's my understanding as well, that a service animal needs to be under the control of their owner at all times. So if if you've got a dog that's running around, sniffing everybody and their brother, it's no longer, that that is either a service animal no longer performing their functions at best, or it's not a service animal. Correct. Um, It's they are within the control of their owner at all times.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. just want to underscore some things here. This is really good information. So uh, assistive animals is the broad term that encompasses the different designations of uh, animals. Service animals are those that have been trained to help to mitigate a disability. You know, then we have under assistive animals, besides service animals, we also have emotional, you know, comfort and support animals these are different service animals does not mean that it's an emotional uh, comfort support animal it does also doesn't mean that it's a therapy animal or a facility animal there's different classifications of assistive animals Um, service animals are the ones that are protected under the ada um, that they are allowed to go into public places as long as like they were saying earlier that they were under the control and when we should ask a question is when it's not apparent that the animal is being used for a disability. So it may be very apparent that um, there's a guide dog guiding somebody who is blind. No need to ask the question when, it, when it's at. But if it's not apparent, then you can ask those two questions that uh, Carolyn alluded to. Mm-hmm. Is this service animal required because of a disability? Can't ask the disability? but is it required, is a service animal required? And and if so, what work or task has this animal been trained to perform? Most service animals take around a year plus uh, under the the guidance of a trainer uh, to be trained for the task for somebody with a disability. And then they're usually uh, then connected to the person with the disability after that year of training. So most service animals have gone through extensive training Ah, uh, before they're given to their owners for doing that, and then I think a very important part of the discussion is also even if it is a service animal and it is protected under the ADA, if the animal is out of control and the handler does not take effective action in order to control it, that's one criteria in order to remove it. Another is if the animal is not uh, housebroken, and so what you want to do is a couple steps. You want to give the handler an opportunity to get their animal under control. Um, If they're not able to, ask the handler to obtain control of their animal. Um, And if not, uh, you're gonna have to ask the handler to remove the animal uh, themselves and then give them the opportunity to receive services without that animal. So it is a bit of a process. I'm hoping the Red Cross already has a lot of these procedures in their policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. um, That shelters should have a space for animals uh, to go to the bathroom themselves, um, that, that the, the, this is already in your procedures and, and everything else about um, how to remove animals, the rights and roles of uh, people that do have service animals versus emotional comfort support animals, the questions that people are allowed to to ask, and understanding what you know not to ask either. never ask you know what is the disability that you have for that the service animal is needed under? That's not a good one. That would be a violation of HIPAA and other kind of things like that. so. Don't Isn't ask really for
3: papers. A, don't ask for training documents. Don't ask don't, for a vest. Do not, do not. There's all kinds of things like that that are not permitted.
2: If for nothing else, there is no standard training. There is no standard papers. There are no there are no standard requirements. So it, if you, we're not able to make that judgment on it. So I I wouldn't want you to to, to have to make a that judgment call because then it'll just get you into more trouble than right. uh, right.
1: three. And it looks like in the chat box, Brad made a very valid point in that he said service animals in training are not protected either. Uh, correct. And and Peter took the opportunity to to confirm that service animals in training is not a service animal, um, just as if a cop in training is not <laughs> a cop. Correct. Um, and so yeah. so we want to make sure that you know we highlight that.
3: Just as a, just a generic piece though, for service animals that are in training during blue skies time, they, they would be permitted with their training vest on to go places with the, the handler at that point. They still would not be seen as a service animal, of course, but they would be permitted to do that. During a crisis, that is not the time for that service animal to be in training amongst others, as an example. We would want that service animal to, of course, be protected and that service animal and trained to be protected, et cetera. But it is not the same thing as admitting a person with their service animal to perform tasks and duties on behalf of that person with a disability. It is different.
0: Yeah, those are important points. Oftentimes, people think that there's some kind of documentation or some kind of vest or some kind of proof that uh, it is a service animal and uh, there's no requirements by law. Um, You know, people can get these little cards offline that says it's a service animal, can get a vest offline that says it's a service animal, does not make it a service animal. Uh, Right or wrong, there's no laws that uh, are are requiring such documentation that a service animal has been fully trained and has been assigned to a person um, uh, to mitigate their disability. So that's why it's really important to understand, um, you know, what the questions that we're allowed to ask are and that, um, you know, when people do try to show you proof, it doesn't mean that it is either. Yep. Yeah, so. I, I
2: I give you one quick example. Yeah, you know, as a wheelchair user, if I wanted to train a service animal to pick up things from the floor, open mm-hmm. doors, whatnot, I could, in theory, train my animal on my own to do all of those functions mm-hmm. and to do all of those things. And so long as I was also training the animal To remain in my control, to be responsive to my commands, to do all of those things, I would have no paperwork, no certification, or no one. That would be a perfectly 1000% legal service animal um, to do so. So that's why, you know, it's like, does it have a vest? Has it, you know, received the certification of the process? Does not not mean necessarily anything. It it, it really is dependent on what is the function that, that the dog is there to perform. And is it dog animal, um, and and is the animal under the control of the individual.
3: Um and, and most often the other the other animal that is um seen is 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 a a miniature horse, uh, and that is because there is uh some individuals that have um uh it, it, there's a cultural uh piece that does not permit them to have dogs in their homes. And so um, a miniature, a miniature horse is an option that is permitted as well. Um, and again, same piece: have to have to be able to control the the animal, have to be able to um, have that animal uh, having the the um, ability to do the tasks that are needed, and also uh, to have the animal uh, utilizing outside sources for using the restroom, et cetera, so that there is not mess for the shelter or the uh, other other inhabitants of the space, right? And so there's um, fewer of those that are typically out and about, but that is also something that could show up at your shelter as well.
0: All right. So let's move on to another question. I'm I'm noticing time's flying by pretty quickly. Yeah. This is a this is a fairly catch-all one here, but um you know, suppose people are working at a shelter and, um, you know, resources are needed uh, from, uh, from somebody that's coming to the shelter that has a disability. It could be a, a sign language interpreter, maybe someone that's coming that stuff Maybe it's trans- paratransportation transportation services. So they're trying to leave the shelter. They have mobility, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, disability. They use a wheelchair. Um, you know, what kind of transportation, you know, are they going to have access to? You can't tell them to necessarily Uber it. Um, Durable medical equipment, maybe someone that does need uh, a walker had to leave uh, and evacuate very quickly and doesn't have a walker coming to the shelter. Asking you for durable medical equipment so there's all kinds of resources that shelters may not have in place. um, And people at shelters may need to secure some resources, what do you recommend people that are at shelters do in order to locate uh, resources to accommodate people with disabilities, what should they do in situations like that, who should they call.
3: So all at once we can say, contact your nearest CIL.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Centers for Independent Living, we have a Center for Independent Living that covers every county in the entire state. So uh, no matter where you are, look up a Center for Independent Living uh, if you're needing some of these resources. Who else might be good uh, to contact uh, if they need any of these kind of resources?
1: You know, I do think that that's a question that's kind of, um, to kind of tailored to your your central area, right? Um, there in in you know in Volusia County, um, Easter Seals has a longer closet right? It's full of durable medical equipment. And so we we if we don't have it, right we will we will refer an individual over to Easter seals to get that information or to get that device. So um, so that's you know, a place where you can can find durable medical equipment. There are multiple um, organizations that do um, that have sign language interpreters um, on staff, and so, you know, I think I think the question about resources is is uh, tailored to an individual area, but um, a center for independent living right is throughout the state. I'm not sure about you know other organizations if, and whether they cover all 67 counties, but we know for sure that a center for independent living. And if they don't have that service right, one of the core services of every center for independent living is that they offer information and referrals. So even if you cannot get um, the, the material or whatever it is, the information that's, uh, that that center may have, you can at least ask them if they know an organization that has it or has the information that they may need. And, and more than likely they, they know, right? So even if you're uncertain as to what that resource may be in your local area, you can call a Center for Independent Living and still get that information.
3: So, I think what also is really important there is that in the blue skies time is to to try to help make these connections ahead. Obviously, we can't know everything that might happen in a um, crisis situation, but by being able to know who you can contact when in a crisis is really great. I know for our particular center, there's two of us that are on like 24 7, so to speak. I mean, it's really nice not to get calls 24 7 most days of the year but when something is needed that it's taking place. So I know that um, ourselves during hurricane, ourselves during a tornado, ourselves during a flood, ourselves during a fire, we have been able to be accessible to our community. And uh, most of our centers have either a way to be available and then also to think about something in an urgent matter at that moment, or what else could you do at that timeframe? So for example, maybe somebody usually uses a walker that in the building that you're in, there was a chair on wheels. Now, obviously we don't want somebody to go flying around and they're not doing scoots down the hall and those kinds of things. But is there something else that you might be able to do in that emergent moment to be assistive until you can get hold of somebody? Is there a way to make sure that that person has the supports that they need? Maybe it's somebody who has a balance impairment where they would normally not be even using a walker but now because they're in a new situation they need support so sometimes that is offering that arm that you might be able to do as guidance towards where you're going Um, being able to know who to reach if you were to need sign language interpreters in your area having some of that information be available um, would be other pieces of that of that side Um, not everybody needs to go to a special needs shelter Many people with disabilities will be able to be just fine being part of your general population and your general shelters and so being able to be open and discussing some of these things again during blue skies times like we are today, um, but in your local area. Um, ahead of time is another way of being prepared. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I, I like what you're saying there, Carolyn, be prepared ahead of time, know where your resources are. Um, you know, if you need a sign language interpreter, if you need durable medical equipment, transportation services, um, et cetera, you know, knowing that ahead of time is very ideal. Um, I'd also add in, if you're not aware, um, every uh, department of health, county department of health, um, as well as our state's department of health has a, somebody occupying a position uh, as the access and functional needs coordinator. Um, so they're they're responsible to, for making sure that people's access and functional needs, transportation, communication, maintaining health, independence, services and support and self-determination are, uh, you know, that's their lead role. And, and so uh, know who your access and functional lo- local access and functional needs coordinator is. The, the state also has one as well. Um, so these would be very good people uh, to, to get to know ahead of time, but if not, um, certainly contacting them while the shelter is open would be very important. Oftentimes, they could be staffing the Emergency Operations Center at the county. If, they're, if, if, if it's, uh, you know, activated, um, they may be there, and that might be a good place to call to, to get resources that you may need at your shelter there.
1: I wanted to add, Tony, if I can, is that as a volunteer, it may be wise to kind of put together your own little goodie bag, so to speak, right? There are low-tech devices that you can kind of put in your bag and anytime there's a disaster, you're able to kind of pull that bag out and just take it with you, right? There are things such as um, handheld screen readers, right? They they magnify um a page to where if you if you have some information you want an individual to read and it's not in large print, you have this magnifier that you can just put over the page. It magnifies the, the words on the page and the person can read that. That's kind of something you can throw in a bag. There are little bitty handheld devices that are portable where you can you can communicate with an individual. They're often battery operated. You throw some batteries in there they they type words you type words it's a Means of communication that goes from one device to the other. That's like I said, battery operated. You throw that in the bag. You know, there are just several um, devices or, or just handheld um, little mini things that you can take that um that will be helpful for you if you're in a in a natural disaster and you don't have the, the ability to go and order it right from Amazon or wherever, right? And then get it in the mail, you know? So so I just, I just wanted to add that there are things that you can do, like Carolyn said, during blue skies that would probably be helpful um, to help an individual with a disability that you didn't think about prior to, but you can just pull this bag out.
0: Thank you, Sawanda. Um, I, I like that to think about it ahead of time and to to have any kind of devices uh, that are low tech and accessible. Uh, that those that's super helpful. So let's go back to another scenario: people are working at a shelter and or you know this could this could happen anywhere um, as well. And uh, someone that you're encountering is deaf, um, and you know right away you can't get a you know sign language interpreter. What are some you know, communication tips that people um, can, can use uh, in order to communicate with somebody who is deaf when there is not a sign language interpreter available. This is a jump ball, whoever wants to take it.
3: Well, it's not, I'll be silent. Uh, but, you know, one of the big pieces is to make sure that you're in front of the person so that they can try to read lips if they're able to not talking with your hand in front of your mouth is a, is a great example of that. We know like right now, because of COVID, we have had issues where people have, of course, have masks on. Obviously, we're doing this by Zoom, so we're, we're all not sitting here in masks. Um, but if uh, you could have in your disposal a, a shield that could be available, because that would be a way where somebody could talk without, with, with still being somewhat protected and being able to see somebody uh, sharing information. Um, being able to write things down. Like Sawana said, in your, in your um, little resource pack, you might be able to have um, several pens and a, and a small pad of paper so that you could you could write back and forth if you needed to. Um, obviously, if you have battery that would be available on your cell phone, you might be able to write information in a text or in a note in order to be able to see it. Um, there are also all kinds of apps that are out there now where when you're speaking, the information will be uh, um, artificial intelligence generated to be able to give content. Um, And that would be another way, just like we're doing here in the Zoom session, where there's closed captioning, you might be able to open something up and it would be able to add those words right there for you. Now, will it be 100% accurate? No, but then you'd be able to clarify some of those pieces. Again, asking that person what's going to work best for them Because if you say, well, I'm trying to speak to you, but you're not following what I'm saying, well, maybe they don't read lips. Maybe they are only able to read what you're writing. Or maybe they know ASL, but they can't understand the English that you're writing. Maybe they need you to point to things. Maybe they've come with their own communication device or their own communication pad, which allows them to say what they need. Like maybe they show you a picture that says that they're thirsty or et cetera. There may be other communication Uh, needs that are there besides sign language that could be in existence. And so being open to what's going to work for that particular individual. And then of course, again, knowing what the resources are in your particular area.
1: Thank you, Carolyn. Anything to add, Peter or Swanda? I think Carolyn pretty much, you know, gave us a a good bit of information and that one one just being able to write it down like she said and and like i said having that goodie bag to where you know you have already put some things together and this won't be a problem um i know oftentimes there are individuals who have have co-occurring disabilities right and so they may be blind and deaf, right? And so sometimes you may, when you do request an interpreter, you may have to be specific in saying that there are individuals that he are here, you know, and they have the co-occurring disability. And so there's that tactile uh, sign language that needs to be used. And so you may want to make sure that you identify that though when you're requesting a sign language interpreter. So it's just things like that, you have to be mindful as well.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that' I've, I, I've learned along the way is that, yes, for, for some people that are deaf, um, writing back and forth can work. And also um, you know, there may be uh, language barriers as well. Mm-hmm. So not everybody who's deaf um, reads um, English language. Cool. And, and so uh, you know going to alternative forms of communication may be necessary even in lieu of uh, being able to read. I know some shelters are staffed up ahead of time with pictorial, charts, uh, which could be helpful as well. And knowing how to uh, you know, read those and uh, to be able to communicate th- those ahead of time, uh, I-, I think would be great. I also know of situations where um, if the person who is deaf had had a phone, a TCY service that, um, uh, or a, a way that the other person could call them on that same phone, and there could be a translator uh, on the phone, they've even used the phones. Some people who are deaf can speech read, some cannot. Um, but there's there's a lot of things to consider in, in being ready to encounter somebody who may be able uh or not be able to read or to be able to understand uh and, and who is deaf. So I know this is a this can be a very challenging one for, for many people to ensure effective communications at shelter situations.
1: Right. and I do I think that someone um said in the chat box, I believe it's Ronald who said that you can ask someone. Else that's in the shelter, if they know um, sign language, and I think that's a good point. Um, There may be very well be someone there who 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 speaks the language, right? And you and you can can utilize that as a resource until their interpreter, formal interpreter, actually, you know, can get there. So it's a good point. Yeah.
3: Go
0: ahead. And if you do do this, know that 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 is, um, uh, you know check to make sure that that person who says that they know how to sign is actually uh signing in a way that the person who is deaf can understand Correct. yeah because there's different different levels and degrees and talents that people have and and some people may say that they they can do it but the person may or may not uh, understand as well that's definitely an option of uh you know when you don't have any uh, you know sign language interpreters that are certified and qualified yeah to be able to do it Go Um, ahead, John. You you hit it right on
2: the head, and and I'll add um, a unique characteristic of being in Miami Dade is uh, ASL is American Sign Language. It's it's very important to understand what that A stands for. Other countries have different types of sign languages, which are different languages the equivalent. So for example, in Miami, we have a lot of folks who come from different places who have learned different forms of sign language um, to do so. So it, it, it's important to know a little bit about the person's background. And, and in, in South Florida and Miami, it can be potentially an added wrinkle to be aware of.
3: And I guess that that's a really important piece to also highlight, and you had already hit it on the head as uh, Peter had said when you said that, what you were sharing a minute ago, Tony. But sometimes we also have individuals who may not have disabilities, but may speak other languages. And so part of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is then being able to to reach out for folks who who might uh, speak other languages. That doesn't mean that they're dumb. It doesn't mean that they're mute. It doesn't mean that they don't, have abilities, but it means that we need to make sure that we can help in that situation as well. Um, and while that's not the specialty of centers for independent living to speak in all other languages, um, at the same time, if, if you know where your resources are in your community ahead of time, then that would be another blue skies piece to have under belt. I know in our particular area, we have a lot of individuals who are um, from the Philippines as an example. Um, and so if, if you don't speak that particular language, then you are not going to be able to be of the same service that you would be if you did. And so being able to know where would somebody be that could speak it. Also understanding though at the same time, not just is somebody skilled to do it, but does that person feel comfortable with it? So for example, we have um, some individuals in our area who if it's a particular sign language interpreter, they are not gonna share content because they don't want their information shared with that particular person. Uh, and, and that makes life more complicated, obviously. If there's a difference, if it's something for safety and emergency, then it is for something that's for sharing somebody's personal information. And so that's where we just all have to also just be aware, just be noticing what kinds of interaction are you seeing? Um, is the person respecting the person that they're trying to help, et cetera? Being open and giving that dignity and respect to the individual to to be able to be part of the conversations that are being held.
1: One of the things I wanted to add, too, um, and it kind of goes back to our first um, conversation, etiquette, right? And as far as sign language interpreting, though, we want to make sure that, um, that the person who is doing the interpreting is speaking with the person who is deaf or hard of hearing, right? So oftentimes what'll happen is um, the conversation will be directed towards um, maybe the Red Cross volunteer. And you know, the, the volunteer is speaking you know, and, and, the, and the person that's deaf is just totally left out of the conversation. And I just wanted to make sure that we highlighted that and kind of went back to that um, conversation we had in part one in that um, to make sure that you're talking with the deaf individual, right? So. That's a
0: good one, Sawanda. I, I think that's really important. I, and, and, you know, if if people have not talked with somebody who's deaf by way of a, a sign language interpreter, um, it could be very natural that somebody might, uh, you know, uh, be saying something to the effect, uh, to the interpreter, uh, tell so-and-so that I said this, that, and the other. You, know, you don't have to speak directly to the interpreter. You speak directly to the person who is deaf and and looking at them as well. Um, not not looking at the interpreter, which can be hard, as the interpreter is doing their sign language. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to see. It really it is, is. Um, and it can be distracting. You might you might be looking at them. Try not to look directly into the eyes. Again, effective communication uh, of the person that you're communicating with. Let the interpreter do their work. Um, you know, try not to acknowledge them that they're there, um, and and don't speak through them. Uh, to speak to the person, speak directly uh, to the person that 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 is deaf, and and that you know the same goes over the phone. You know you don't have to tell the interpreter who's on the line. Please tell so and so. I said this, that, and the other. You're just speaking directly to that person. And if you don't have experience doing that, that that, that, that can be you know kind of hard uh, uh, to do. Uh, so that that's a really good point there, Solanda
1: yeah and, and i can tell you firsthand that um this just recently happened to me and i think that's why i'm bringing it back up because it was literally the hardest thing and i i found myself looking at the interpreter and and i'll be honest with you it was more so me trying to figure out did the interpreter finish what i'm saying to where i can go on to the next question right but it is the hardest thing to um to try and balance right that that lines of communication and did he finish saying what i'm saying what i was saying or a- am i able to talk again or you know what what that looks like, but but it's you have to make a conscious effort to do it, and it yeah. is hard. I will be the first to admit that.
0: Yeah, yeah, signing is a beautiful thing. You know, it's a talent that they have. It's it's, it's hard not to uh, to admire it and to look at it. And and, and another thing too. Um, you know, we we've had this experience because we do have sign language interpreters that go out into the community, and now um, we have had a handful of experiences where um, the person who is deaf uh, maybe submitting a complaint, or, you know, very, um, you know, maybe upset. Um, and as the interpreters communicating, you know, to the person who can hear, um, they're going to communicate exactly what's being said by the person. And you, usually, if they're a really good interpreter, they'll communicate the emotion too. And and, and so we've gotten calls from from uh, healthcare providers and, and others saying that our, our interpreter was rude, and, and they were talking, you know, rudely, and and this, that, and the other. And why did they do that? Well, we have to explain to people, it wasn't our interpreter. It was the person that you were working with that was not happy. Um, They were communicating exactly what they wanted said, and they communicated it with the emotions that was being said as well. So so if this interpreter is communicating, you know, uh, a complaint um, that might be coming out of anger, um, just know that it's not the interpreter who's being rude. They're supposed to be completely um, objective as far as the, you know, not interfering, um, you know, within the communication and uh, advocating, you know, on behalf of the person who's deaf. They're supposed to be literally communicating the the words and the emotions uh, of the person as well. So uh, I think that's also very important as we've gotten many calls ensuing uh, in, in, in that our interpreters were rude and, and it wasn't. Yeah, that, that is changed. important,
1: Tony. Is.
0: <laughs> All right. So um, we heard, you know, uh, on our icebreaker there that there are a few people that might feel least comfortable serving people uh, with mental health or psychiatric conditions and, and whatnot. And so I'm going to throw out there a situation where supposedly, let's say someone comes to the shelter you know, who may be, you know, who may have, you may not know, uh, PTSD or autism, but is definitely somebody that you can tell can be easily overstimulated. And it may react, you know, negatively to, to any kind of uh, stimulation or even overstimulation it can be very harmful to their well-being. Now, we all know that shelters can be very loud and noisy and lots of stimulus. What should people do in a situation when they're receiving somebody that has a disability like autism, like PTSD, and like some others, where a lot of stimulus is is not good for their well-being. What should people that work in shelters keep in mind to help to accommodate uh, such a person?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. I have some. I have a son who falls into one of those categories of. Being on the autism spectrum um, and you know characteristics for him is is, uh, is what would be challenging in a shelter. Is, is having a routine um, is incredibly important to him, which obviously goes out the window um, to do so. But but having a being overstimulated can be um something that's very challenging so i one of the things that i would start off right at the beginning and and you know this applies for so much when it comes to working with folks with disabilities is if they are able to communicate ask them is step one if you've got somebody who for example under the condition case of ptsd we would trust them to communicate to a shelter staff member, hey, um, I, I have a disability. Is there any way that I can, you know, is, is there a quiet space that I can be in to do so? You know, for example, with my son, if we came in and and together with with him, we would advocate for for him on 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 his part. And we'd say, you know, is there a quiet corner that we can put away? Is there a way that we can sit away from, from other folks or maybe put up some curtains of some kind, even if they're just sheets and some string or or, or put up a barrier to bring down some sound? And, and again, it, it's communicating with the individual themselves and then the advocate for themselves and and you know the 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 challenging news is, is that the types of disabilities that there are in the world are nearly infinite. Um, you know, and and what are what works best for one person is different than works for another person. The good news is, though, is that if you sit down and communicate with themselves or with those who are advocating for for them, is is that if you have an open mind. Solutions can be found in in most of the cases with just a, a little bit of creativity um, and a willingness to engage. So, for example, you know I I think I mentioned this last time. And when I do trainings in the organizations, you know I, we tell frontline staff don't say no, say let me go talk to my boss about that, and and have that keep going up the chain until you feel as though you've gotten to somebody. Who is knowledgeable enough and confident enough to be able to say no? Um, because, because oftentimes it gets to a point within the structure of somebody who has the ability to be creative within the decision making process. You may not be processed, or the your team members in front of you, you know, you're not comfortable giving them that lip. That's good. That's fine. You know, we don't expect everybody to be an expert in it. But training them then to say, instead of saying no, say, let me go talk to somebody about that. Let me go bring them um, and see what we can do about figuring out a solution.
1: Yeah, I think I think that we were all tested in this category. Um, as COVID became a thing, right? We went from um, individuals having a structured routine to getting up, getting their face washed and teeth brushed and going to school or going to a job. And that was all disrupted, right? From a stay-at-home order. So I think I think we all got a test in this um, just recently, right? And, and I will say that a coat closet can go a long way, right? You can turn a coat closet into a quiet space and make it safe and make that person feel comfortable. A couple of books and a a coat closet may take you very far. It does not have to be a... Formalized area. Um, I've gone to a few conferences where they have, you know, an entire room, and and they may have some some you know soft music playing or things of such um, that just makes it a warm and welcoming environment. I think I think that that um, would go further. You know, like I said, just just any closed off any any area that you can designate um, as as an area that's a quiet space. I think can make a, the world of difference. In reassuring the person that they're safe, and this is a safe space for them to maybe get a little bit more relaxed and comfortable, and I and I think that just um, if you think about that, it, it's not as hard as it you know as it sounds. It's you you can do a lot with a little bit, and so I think I think that's important. Um, Tony, I have a quick question, and that is, do you think we should open um, this conversation up for questions? We have about nine minutes. I would love to hear questions from the audience that we can yeah. field.
0: Yes, yes. So please, um, if you have any questions, um, please, please put them in the chat or feedback or comments that uh, we can, uh, you know, have a discussion around. Again, we, you know, would love to tailor this more towards what your interests uh, are and in learning more about. We do have a few more minutes, like Sawanda said. So uh, please put something in there so we can take it take it home uh, in a very strong way. And until we get one, um, I just want to underscore what was just said. You know, having a quiet space um, designated ahead of time is great. If there's not a designated quiet space, look for areas that you could create one. Um, You know, being prepared ahead of time with any kind of uh, sensory calming kits that are there. I know weighted blankets can be uh, very good, sensory balls and toys for kids. Um, Noise-canceling headphones uh, can be good for certain people um so so think again think of those two things ahead of time if uh, if it's possible and if not think on the fly about how you, maybe you can get some of these things into place
3: and i guess tony one other thing i would add there before we uh maybe have another question that might come from the community is that remember we are also as centers for independent living providing trainings out to our communities um for emergency preparedness as well so just as we are suggesting some things to the Red Cross for ways that they could be prepared. We're doing similarly the same kinds of things for people um, who have disabilities in our communities. So when we do a training, as an example, myself, I have the cane that I always use if I'm going out at night, but I have an extra cane. So in my emergency bag, I try to put the extra cane. What if the cane that I was using normally breaks? Well, it isn't every shelter's responsibility to get me another white cane, right? But I, but I can do some things myself in my preparations. However, if I showed up at your site because I didn't have the white cane and I needed to be oriented, then having some of those tools of how you could guide me and was part of what you would have is part of what we're saying that could be useful. Same thing for communications. Um, maybe the young man with autism might not be able to tell you that they're thirsty, but if they saw a picture, with different kinds of things on it, they might be able to point to tell you that they're thirsty. Maybe that's gonna be part of their own emergency bag. Um, So there's different ways that different things may be um, available to be assistive on both sides of that piece, that you're not in it alone as a volunteer, that we are hoping that together, the centers, the Red Cross, the community can work towards the best scenario if there was an emergency and we weren't in blue skies.
1: And sometimes, sometimes an individual just needs a listening ear, right? Sometimes it's just necessary to listen. Um, That goes a long way. I mean, I I think we, you know, during COVID, we, we, some, some of us were kind of closed in alone and just having the ability to to join a Zoom call or, you know, just some kind of human interaction and, and just being able to participate and be social um, has helped. So, so I think, I think, you know, we can't discount just being a listening ear may be the answer.
0: All right. Well, you know, you're just to kind of go along again, the, the, the lines of, um, you know, working with people um, that may have mental health conditions. Um, you know, one of the things too coming into shelter um, is medications, you know, prescription medications. They may be on and may not have And understanding, um, you know, perhaps how to meet somebody's needs. That's going to be there for a while that is on prescription meds, but doesn't have them. Maybe something that you're coming across um, and and may need to, you know, kind of think about. um, Red
4: Cross actually has that covered. I don't know if we have any nursing volunteers on the
0: on the, good on
4: today, but that is something so we glad to hear that. absolutely that's a, have. That's a remember. major one.
1: Yep. Yeah, perfect.
0: Good, good. Yeah. Um, that's a good one to hear too. And, uh, and, as was alluded to in the beginning, you know, whatever you may feel least comfortable with might be the population, um, be- between now and any kind of time that you may be activated, if possible, get more exposure, uh, uh to that group of people. So, uh, I know, um, you know, from experience that, when I first began working with people who had intellectual disabilities, maybe it was autism or down syndrome, you know, I didn't feel confident in my abilities to communicate with them. But then uh, when I got some experience in, in, uh, around them and, and uh, getting to know them, um, you know, I became better at it. And, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it, at first it was naturally, it was awkward and, and that's OK. But the, just having that face to face or that experience to be able to do that ahead of time was huge. I know that helped us out here locally when uh, you know our local police department was wanting to do better with their trainings uh, when they encounter people who have intellectual disabilities to be able to communicate better. You know, we we help co- coordinate experiences where uh, police officers could come together with people who had intellectual or developmental disabilities, and they could hang out and 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 be able to just you know get to know one another, and then all of a sudden a lot of those you know, apprehensions or, you know, feelings of not being natural tended to dissipate. And so I I encourage you all, um, you know, to be able to, you know, cultivate opportunities uh, where uh, you get the experience of communicating with somebody that you haven't uh, been able to communicate with before. If they're blind or deaf or, or you know, use wheelchairs, whatever it may be that you feel least comfortable with, that's probably where you need to go uh, and spend some time with if it's at all possible. And centers for independent living can be a a good uh, link into being able to do that.
4: This has been so informative. I have a whole page of notes. And I think that the one thing I wrote down several times is ask first and make sure that you are respectful. Um, I think, Carolyn, you used the word dignity, which is really the, the bottom line of all of this, these conversations and trainings that we do is how do you treat people with dignity you know, if you see Peter rolling into a shelter, and you're like, hey, Peter, you know, yelling across the room, hey, will me help you with it, I, you know, be thoughtful, be, uh, discreet might be a little bit too much too strong of a word, but be considerate of the person in their family and we're Red Crossers, I know a lot of this comes naturally, but um, these are the kinds of conversations, if we have them now, hopefully when you find yourself in a situation, whether it's at a shelter or a home fire, or even at a training, um, you know, a blue sky training, that you have the this conversation in the back of your head and you remember, what would the, the folks from CIL tell me to do in this situation?
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I was just gonna say that as you do your blue skies trainings, that may be happening all over the state, remember that there's a CIL that connects to your area and to think about um, involving the CIL in those blue skies trainings, um, being able to have, um, individuals with disabilities actually participate in your blue sky training, because that will give that opportunity for that to not be perhaps the first time that you encounter somebody is when you're in an emergency versus in, you know, training beforehand.
4: Uh, you just thought reminded me of one more thing. Um, Leslie Lopez, who's a member of your CIL team and my amazing CDL. She's part of a team that, um, In the past, we have visited potential shelter locations ahead of time just to scope them out and make sure, and this is, you know, I'm not on the disaster side normally, so I don't know, you know, someone who is on disaster may correct me, but when we do try to visit and make sure that the bathrooms are fully accessible, you know, even if we're at a school where legally it should be entirely accessible, sometimes, as you all said, there could be one door that is and five doors that are not. Um, Those are things we need to be aware of going into hurricane
3: season. I was just going to share that I know that I had been on a walkthrough with um, the Red Cross and our local emergency planners at one point in time. And the standard route into the building had accessibility. But when they're in a shelter situation, it was someplace else. And so we had to talk about what was going to make that entrance accessible and how could they rearrange the entryway. What could we do different to make that more accessible? So all those kinds of things were ahead of time. Now, of course, that's presuming that the folks who were on that walkthrough are going to be the same folks that would be assigned on that particular emergency on that particular day. And so there's pieces of information that could go in that binder for future folks to learn that same content, because, of course, we know that every day there's different situations that may arise. So trying to be supportive of each other, I think, is really important.
4: Somebody mentioned the CIL state web. Jane, remind us what that is um, in case somebody wants to look it up. It's floridasills.org, F-L-O-R-I-D-A-C-I-L-S.org. You can find a map and the locations and contact information for each of the CILs, and the map will show you what counties they serve. Thank you. Great blue sky and gray sky resource. I'm impressed We've almost everybody who stayed on for the entire hour and a half. This is pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. This goes to show you the, the strong connection we feel to the organization, between the organizations and the importance of the information that you all are sharing today.
0: Well, Debbie, I, you know, I wanna thank you as well um, for helping uh, and Jane uh, for, for you all getting together and helping to facilitate this. Thank you for everyone who's attended or who's gonna watch the recording of this. Um, You know, people with disabilities uh, tend to be the most vulnerable before, during, and after disasters. Um, You know, we're all about people keeping people in the community, uh, in their own homes, their apartments, etc, to whatever extent possible. Um, Natural disasters are a big threat to people living in the community and their independence. Um, More often than, than it should happen, people with disabilities will be living in the community, going to a shelter, and then um, have a very difficult time getting back home. So you all are doing incredible work, very important work, just the job of heroes, and, and appreciate you all wanting to learn more and do better uh, and serving the most vulnerable among us. And so my hats are off to all of you for everything that you do. It's, it's, it's a real honor to, to, to come here and have a conversation with all of you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank
1: you all for coming.
4: Thank you for that perfect wrap up. Thank you all to for the amount of time and effort you put into preparing for this. It was a fantastic conversation. Jane, let's everybody, this is really wonderful. Hopefully we'll have a part three sometime, maybe over the summer. Um, if there are ideas from the Red Crossers on specific topics you'd like us to cover, please let me know and and um, we'll get to work. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com, or
3: call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.